Hey, good morning. My name's Doug, I'm one of the pastors here. Great to be with you today. So I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I um, loved, like, did you know, did any of you guys struggle with what yesterday was? Because like we had celebrated Thanksgiving. Friday seemed like a Saturday because the Iowa game was on and we won again, beat Nebraska again. So it just seemed like Friday should have been Saturday and yesterday was a bonus day. I loved bonus day. I think we need to have eight day weeks and always slip in a bonus day between Saturday and Sunday. It was great. So, but I hope you had a great time. My girls are back from college. Fun to be with them, be together as a family. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't know where that is, just look in your table of contents. It'll take you there. You can swipe on your phone and get there. Uh, but for the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about generosity. And I want to start, though, with... Um, talking about uh, some resemblances here. So maybe in one of your family gatherings, I don't know, maybe there was a newborn in one of the families. And have you ever noticed like when there's a new baby in the family, you look and immediately people say, oh, he looks just like grandpa. looks just like his mom. looks like his dad. So um, here's a couple of those. Maybe you've seen these things before where it's a celebrity child and then the celebrity and see if you can guess who the celebrity is. So here's the first one. This guy's name is Scott. And I don't know if you can tell the famous, what famous, his famous dad is Clint Eastwood. So this second one's going to be super obvious, okay? This guy's name is Colin, and his dad is Tom Hanks. In fact, Colin looks a little bit like Forrest Gump to me there, so in that one. So, and this, this woman's name is Mamie, and her mom is Meryl Streep. And so sometimes, you know, maybe, uh, you know, you can totally tell, like, Oh, I can tell whose dad that is, or mom that is, and all that kind of thing. So, but here's the reason I'm talking about that. Uh, Jesus Christ is the most influential person that has ever walked this planet. And Jesus Christ has transformed uh, millions and millions and millions of lives. In fact, the people who trust in Jesus, who follow Jesus, people even when Jesus was on the planet, people who were around Jesus were changed by him. In fact, there would be some resemblances then. And one of my favorite ones is in, in the Bible, in Acts chapter 4, when uh, the disciples, and particularly Peter and John, two of Jesus' uh, close disciples, were on trial for talking about the resurrection. And so they were just boldly answering questions and telling this group called the Sanhedrin. It was the same group that sentenced Jesus to death about two months before. So here's Peter and John just boldly answering their questions, and they're not backing down. And there's a little comment about the Sanhedrin. It says that they noticed Peter and John and they saw that they were average, ordinary, uneducated men. But then when they saw their courage, they realized that they'd been with Jesus. Like Jesus had transformed them. In fact, I think you see throughout the history of the church that the closer people get to Jesus, I think these traits emerge. The traits of courage, the trait of humility, and the trait of generosity. In fact, I love reading writings from the days of the early church when people on the outside would make comments about the early Christians. And so if you read a lot of those, what the early Christians were teaching didn't make a lot of sense to them, that their Messiah died and then rose again from the dead. Or that, you know, for a Jewish, uh, Jewish audience background at that time, to hear that the Messiah would come as a servant and that he would suffer. And he, so the, initially the teaching didn't make sense to people, but what people on the outside could not deny was that the people who followed Jesus were generous. They were famous for this. So there's one of those writings. It's called the Epistle of Mathetes to Dognetus. I'm sure a lot of you guys were reading that this week. But um, it's from the late 2nd century. 
and he's an outsider writing about Christians. Here's how he described them. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. And they are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. I just love those kind of statements. And you could not deny that the people who had been around Jesus had been totally flipped. They were not living for themselves, but they were known for their generosity. So our mission statement as a church is that we pursue Jesus in everyday life. And our goal is that as we collectively are pursuing Jesus, we'll become more and more like him. In fact, the leadership here has developed um, so these five traits. Like as we look through the Gospels, and as Jesus described, if you do this, then you are my follower. And, and these are five traits um, that we feel like dis- define a disciple. These are the DNA traits of somebody that's a follower of Christ, is that they will enjoy God's presence. So that, that talks about we're a person that enjoys worship and prayer, just like uh, Jesus did, that we will live God's story. That means we are a people of this book, the Bible, the story of God, that we are a people who live this book, who obey this book, who study this book. So we live God's story. We love God's people. It's like Christ has loved us. We share God's gifts, and we serve God's world. And so this is the life that Jesus died for us to have. He calls it an abundant life, and he warns us with things like, if you try to save your life, Like, just do life for yourself, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake in the gospel, you will find life. So a follower of Jesus is generous with their time, with their lives, with their attention, and with their money. And there's a verse in 1 Timothy 6 that describes this kind of generous lifestyle as the life that is truly life. Again, like we're missing out. We think we've got life if we're not living generously, but God has a life for us that is truly life, and that's the life of generosity. So if you know much about Parkview, our model of how we do church really relies on this concept of generosity. Like we, we need volunteers, like we need servant-minded, other-centered people uh, to help this place move and roll. And so many of you guys do a great job of that. We're also a church that tries to model generosity through what we do with the finances that come in here. About 30% of the money that comes in here goes out of here to different parts of our city, different parts of the world. We want to be a church that models generosity. So we're we're really a church that relies on this concept. And um, we pray that our church will be an example. We are a group of people who have encountered Jesus, and that is why we're generous, right? And so um, if you look nationally at the typical church, even the typical evangelical church like us, about a third of the people are generous, like with their time and that they actually tithe, give 10%. About a third, this is nationally, about a third of the people in church will be a little more sporadic in that. Like sometimes they'll give, or if there's a, you know, but it's not a consistent lifestyle. And then sadly, there's about a third that do nothing. Like do not serve, do not give. Our numbers are, are slightly better than that. Um, but I had a friend of mine that does work, this kind of work with churches a couple weeks ago. And he said, first of all, he said, you're pretty brave talking about this. Only 15% of pastors do anymore today. Um, but he also kind of warned me, so there's going to be some people that will immediately just kind of tune you out. So basically, what I'm preparing for today is a third of you are going to be super pumped about today, and especially next week. We're going to look at the benefits that come to generosity. So there's a third of you that are just going to love these two mornings. There's a third of you, I honestly think, that just have not had this explained to you, have not really heard from the Bible, like, what a life of generosity looks like, and why be generous. 
And so that's my, my hope this morning. Uh, but also there's kind of a third, this guy kind of warned me, like, I'm just going to be mad. I'm just going to kind of turn you out. And, and so and again, my, my heart behind all of this is that my desire as a pastor is that for me, for my family, for our church, that we are people who truly are following Jesus. And I'm, this is a key statement you're going to hear throughout the morning, is that being generous makes no sense until you truly meet Jesus Christ. Being generous makes no sense until you truly meet Jesus Christ. And so, um, because our, 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 really our generosity is a reflection of our relationship with Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning is talk about the heart of generosity. So if you guys could all stand up, our key text for today is 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 9. What we're going to do right now is read verses 1 to 5, and then kind of the punchline of the whole morning is verse 9. So that's what we're going to read to, to us as we're standing give attention to God's word. Let me read it to us. 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of, favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And now jumping to verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, uh, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, I pray that verse we just read, verse 9, would be the focus of this morning, that every one of us would just come to grips with how generous you have been to us. You were rich, you became poor, we were poor, and we were made rich in Christ. May that truth blow us away, because genuine generosity does not happen until we meet you, until we encounter and experience the gospel. And so, would that lead this morning, would that be the banner over this morning, is that Jesus, you have been amazingly and astonishingly generous with us. So now take that truth, plant it in our hearts, and change us. We want to be like Christ. In his name we pray, amen. All right, you guys can grab a seat. So, normally, <clears throat> you've probably noticed, when we take a passage of scripture and teach through it, usually we just kind of go, like normally today, go from verse one to verse nine. I, I can't help but just to jump to verse nine to start with, okay? I'm the kind of guy that can't keep a secret, can't wait to let everybody know the punchline, but I just think as I looked at this passage, I want to lead with verse nine because this is the epitome of generosity. Generosity does not make sense until you really encounter the generosity of Jesus Christ. And you guys, this, the, both this Sunday and next Sunday are great tie-ins with the Advent season, with, with getting ready for Christmas as well. In fact, for your family, chapter 8, verse 9 might be a good verse for you to use as a banner verse for the Christmas season. Let me read it to us again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is where generosity begins. There is no greater illustration of generosity than Jesus Christ. And again, generosity makes no sense until you encounter and experience Jesus. So um, what we're going to do this morning here for a little bit is, is look at those four things that this verse talks about. Riches of Christ, poverty of Christ, our poverty, and then our riches in Christ. Uh, I'm going to 
highlight a couple key scriptures for each one so you can stay in 2 Corinthians 8 and maybe just write these down. In fact, I think Dave mentioned earlier, uh, there's some study guides that go along with these two sermons. And I know this is a passage, uh, I think the first devotional in here will take you through some of these passages about Christ's riches, his poverty, our poverty, Christ, and our riches in Christ. But let me just hit a couple here. So if you talk about the riches of Christ, I think of Colossians 1, 16 and 17. It says, for by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is clearly the greatest person that's ever walked this planet. He was fully God, fully man. And this scripture and many others tell us that, that he existed in eternity past that he is the one who created all that we see. We're told that all that has been created is sustained by him, that it's for him, it's by him and for him, and that he is the name that is above every name, every authority, every ruler, every power, every king, and even in the spiritual dimension, any power that may exist there, Jesus is absolutely in charge. And add to that that he also has had the perfect love relationship with the Heavenly Father. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect, eternal love for each other. Jesus has uh, the amazing setup. He is clearly supreme in his power, in his holiness, in his perfection, in his love. Jesus is supreme. He is above all names. And this powerful Lord then became poor for us. And so one, one place you could look for that is Philippians 2, 6 to 8. We preached through Philippians earlier this year. But guys, this passage is just rich in showing what Jesus did with his riches for us. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. That means to, held on, to be held onto for selfish advantage. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the most staggering example of self-emptying and of humility, to go from such a place of supremacy to go to such a place of servanthood. Even if you just reflect on those moments on the cross, Jesus suffered greatly. Jesus was taunted uh, by his enemies. Jesus, in probably the most searing pain, was when he was dying on the cross. The Bible tells us that at that moment, he was absorbing the holy wrath of God uh, for, all of sin, for all of humanity, all of the sins that we have committed. Uh, God's just wrath on those sins was poured on his son, Jesus. So the theology, the, the theology is super hard to figure all this out, but in some sense, in those moments on the cross, uh, there, was, there was definitely a fracture, uh, if not a break, in that love relationship that Jesus had with his father. Jesus laid everything down, his relationship with his father, his status, his power. He went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows for us on the cross. He became poor for us. And what especially makes that act of humility and of suffering so staggering is you look at who he did it for, right? It wasn't like he did it for somebody who was like, man, you are awesome. I wish I could just get you on my team. Like you have so much you could add to me. It's the complete opposite is now we focus on our poverty. Like who did Jesus empty himself for? 
Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, says this is the description of us before Christ, that we were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in, once, in, in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 5 adds to this that we were God's enemies. So it wasn't like that we were only, you know, Ephesians 2 said we were dead, we were hopeless, like we had nothing, we could not revive ourselves. And not only were we in such a desperate state, but in that desperate state, we were still enemies of God, opposing him, shaking a fist at him in our own pride and self-sufficiency, just telling him to get out. Like, honestly, a, a, a neutral observer watching what Jesus was doing and who he was doing it for would say, Jesus, what are you thinking? Like, this makes no sense. Look at those peop people. They, they kind of deserve what they're getting. Like, they don't even want you. They're rejecting you. And yet, you see, again, how, how massive the generosity of Jesus is in not just what he did, but who he did it for. Guys, apart from Christ, we are absolutely hopeless. And there was nothing in us, again, that earned his favor. There was nothing in us uh, that was attractive to him in that moment other than he laid down his life for desperate people, broken people, even enemies like us. And so now, because he did that, though, we are now, if you have faith in Christ, if you receive what he has done for you on the cross, the Bible describes this as being rich in Christ. And so let me just read a couple verses from Ephesians 2, starting in verse 4. Again, it's following what we just read, that we were spiritually dead, that we were in deep trouble. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Guys, that is the most absolute rags to riches story that has ever been written. Uh, spiritually dead, in the pit, rebellious against God, absolutely no hope, but yet God, rich in mercy, Jesus died for us, raised us up, and then seated us with him in the heavenly places. John 1 describes it as being adopted into God's family, like we become children of God. Romans 8 describes it as being adopted and so much so that God in, indwells us with his spirit and the, one of the roles of the spirit is to cry out, Abba, Father, to constantly remind us that even though we were wretched sinners, we are now adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And that means that every day in our lives now, we live uh, in the presence of this gracious God who, who, in spite of what we have done, has now made us heirs with his son, Jesus Christ. And so I, the, we, we have an amazing setup. This God who did this for us in our time of greatest need is still that God who loves us and will meet every need we have. Like we are so richly supplied and cared for that that gives us freedom to be generous people. I love how the 23rd Psalm ends with verse six where it says, goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives. And then when this life is over, we'll go to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Because we have an amazing setup through Jesus Christ. Every day, grace and mercy, grace and mercy, 
God's provision, everything we need until this life is over and then we go dwell with him forever. That is our amazing setup. And so we are so rich and true followers of Jesus embrace this and then reflect his generosity to the world around them. Generosity makes no sense until you experience and encounter Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And so uh, this is... This is the epitome of generosity. That's why I got us out of order and started in verse nine. Like this is what starts the generosity rolling in our lives, okay? So, so if that's the punchline, let's go back up to verse one. And, and it could get a little confusing here. There's four churches in play in these eight verses, okay? So the church that Paul is writing to, the book is called Second Corinthians. So he's writing to some Christians in a city called Corinth. And this church has caused Paul some grief over the years. Like they, they have um, definitely missed the target on some things. They thought they knew everything. They thought they were intellectual, but there were some pretty big gaps. And one gap that Paul's exposing here is this area of generosity. There apparently was a season where they were being generous, but now they've kind of backed off. And so chapter eight and chapter nine is really an attempt by Paul to remind them of what Christ has done for them and get them back in the game of reflecting God's generosity. But one way he's going to do that, starting in verse 1, is he's going to point to three other churches and to show how they are reflecting God's generosity. So that's what we read earlier today in, in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. Points to a group of three churches in Macedonia, and it was the Berean church, the, the church in Philippi, and the church in Thessalonica. It was a region that had been ravaged um, in many ways by war. It was a region where the believers especially had been intensely persecuted. And so when Paul talked about them being in affliction and being in poverty, a lot of that was because of their faith in Christ. It reminds me, maybe some of you have met people, believers from different parts of the world, where there's some intense persecution. It reminds me of the believers I got to be with for about 10 days in southern Sudan, um, where I went over to be the trainer, like I trained some pastors there, but I was the one that came back schooled. I got schooled with seeing these people living with absolute joy and passion and, and love for Jesus in the midst of some horrific stories of persecution they had faced. I, I think of the, those, those men, those brothers from southern Sudan when I read about these churches in Macedonia. So, um, but what we're going to see here is that these guys have, are, are reflecting the generosity of God, the generosity of the gospel. And, and it's going to show that they really do. They have really seen uh, what the gospel has, has done in their lives. They're going to put that on display. So one thing I like about this book, so these study guides you can get on your way out today, is that we have sprinkled that booklet with different stories, uh, testimonies of people in the Parkview family over the years that have seen what God has done in their lives when they've tried to reflect his generosity, when they have, have, have by God's grace, become uh, generous people. And so Paul's going to point to some examples of other believers to kind of motivate the Corinthians, uh, and that's one thing we try to do in this book. So let me, let me just read you one that really jumps out at me. Uh, this, and I know this guy, and I've seen God change his heart. He says, prior to having a true relationship and faith in Jesus, I would have suggested that giving money away was, all caps, not an efficient way to financial independence. But now that I've experienced what I have, I would suggest otherwise. First, in my opinion, thoughts and feelings about giving were 
totally turned on their head almost immediately after I vocalized my faith in Jesus. The first two miracles I experienced after doing this were first, an incredible desire to read the Bible, to read the Bible. He says, that was very strange for me. And second, a desire, and he says, yes, a desire to give. But the strangest part about my giving was my confidence in doing it and my joy. Prior, <laughs> prior to, to such giving, uh, I'm sorry, prior to this, such giving was painful. I only did it when I felt trapped. And then I did it with anger or anxiety. I immediately would worry about how this is setting me back or others are going to get ahead of me financially. Now, after starting my joyful giving, I have seen God bountifully provide for me. It's a beautiful story, and that's what, what Paul is doing here, too. He's pointing to the example of some believers. And let me just kind of break down some of the things, if you have your Bible still open. Just look at some of these key phrases he uses to describe these believers in Macedonia. Uh, first, he says that the grace of God was given to them. Like what started the whole generosity thing in these three churches was the grace of God. It's gospel-triggered generosity. Like I said, you will not know generosity until you have met and experienced Jesus. That's what happened. The grace of God went first, and, and then generosity took, started taking hold in these people's lives. The way that you know you've experienced the grace of God is that you will find yourself becoming more and more generous. It's, it, one comes first. You need the grace of God, but once you've truly tasted the grace of God, you will grow in your generosity. He makes this statement too, and we've talked a little bit about it, that they were in severe affliction and that they were in poverty, and yet they were still generous. I think of one of these churches uh, was uh, the church in Philippi, like I said, and one of the promises Paul taught them when he wrote them a letter was one of my favorite ones about, about God's provision for us. Philippians 4.19 is that, my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And so these people clung to truths like that. And so in spite of their own affliction and their own suffering, they trusted that God would supply for them and they gave generously. Another phrase Paul uses for them is that there was abundant joy. Like they gave joyfully. Um, next, next week's passage, we're going to see that God loves cheerful givers. And so, um, in fact, even Jesus himself, we're told in the book of Hebrews, that when he was dying on the cross, and suffering and laying down his life, again, the greatest act of generosity. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. The joy of obeying his father, the joy of being part of God's plan to rescue humanity you know, from their sins. And I, I believe even the joy of seeing you, of one day being with you forever in heaven, the joy set before him. So even Christ experienced joy in his intense suffering. And that's that's a description of, of these folks, too, that in spite of their affliction, in spite of their hardship, and in spite of their radical generosity, they were super joyful through the whole, the whole deal. So I love it when secular research discovers something that the Bible already told us about, right? And so there's a book that came out about five, seven years ago called The Paradox of Generosity. It was written by some sociologists one is named Christian Smith, who's at Notre Dame. And so it's not necessarily a faith-based book. It's not like loaded with Bible verses. But they did a study on people in the United States, and they kind of broke people into people who were generous and people who were not. And a lot of different measures by their volunteer hours, uh, by their gifts to charity and those kind of things. And they also did a measure on just different factors of happiness in these people's lives. 
And what they saw clearly was that those who were the most generous as far as a lifestyle, who were deeply involved in caring for others, scored, scored way higher than those who were not in things like joy, in things like happiness, um, in lower levels of de- depression and discouragement. And so, and so, again, the title is called Paradox of Generosity um, because it surprised them. You know, we live in a world that says you've got to hoard, you've got to keep, you've got to look for yourselves first, and, and yet their, their discovery matches totally in line what these churches in Macedonia experienced. In spite of affliction, in spite of uh, severe hardship, they were generous and they were joyful in the midst of that. Paul makes this expression too, this comment about them. He says that they gave beyond their means more than they should have. In fact, Paul was blown away by the amount they gave, understanding their circumstances. So what was clear is that they were honoring God with their giving. It was so clear that God was number one in their lives. There's a verse in the Proverbs that, that challenges us to honor God with our our lives with our, with our wealth. And so here's an example of people that are honoring God with their giving. And that was a good thought for me this week. Like I just paused and thought, is God honored by how I'm living my life? Like is God honored by the time that I'm serving or sacrificing or the amount that we are giving? Like would God look and see that we truly honor him, truly love him by, by how we are giving? So these folks gave beyond their means. They were giving honor to God. Uh, they gave of their own accord. They even begged earnestly for the chance to give. Like Paul didn't have to guilt trip these people. He didn't have to power up on them as an apostle and start commanding them to give. Uh, they just gave of their own accord. Again, this doesn't happen naturally until you encounter the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And the summary statement that Paul makes about them is that they gave themselves first to the Lord. Gave themselves to the Lord First, Lord, we are yours. You bought us. You love us. You have just heaped riches into our lives. Now we are going to be generous. We're going to share what you have given to us. And that's a great question for us to ask this morning. In fact, if, you could, if I could just be flat out honest with you, my, my biggest incentive in talking about generosity for two weeks is not about part for you and our giving. It's not about, it's really about, our, as a people, do we understand the grace of God? Have we encountered, truly encountered, the grace of God? And are we truly living in Christ's riches? Like, guys, that just frees us from so many things that we shouldn't be struggling with, like worry and fear and greed and materialism. Like, if we just understand how rich we are in Christ, we're just set free to live a completely different life. So if you want to see, is Jesus really first in our lives, then you just got to follow the trail of a couple things. Um, here's, a, here's a couple. Like, what do you talk about the most? Like, what just most naturally flows uh, out of your mouth? Like, what do you just love talking about? That's usually an indicator of what's important to you. Or if we were to look at our calendars, look at where we've spent our time in the last year, your discretionary time, where does your time go? That'll be a pathway to something that you truly love. And then the next is going to be our finances. That whatever we spend uh, the most easily on, the most joyfully on, will show that this is truly our, our first love. It could be our kids. Uh, it could be our hobbies. It could be tucking away things for our future. It could be vacations and trips. But if you want to just be painfully honest about, you know, because we can easily live in the realm of intentions. Oh, yeah, God's everything to me. Okay, let's look. Like, are we serious about that? Let's look at where our time goes. Let's look at what we talk about. And let's look at where our money goes, because 
our money and our time and our energy just flow naturally and abundantly to whatever it is that we love the most. So, so now Paul has kind of pointed out this amazing example of these churches in Macedonia, so flipped by the grace of God. And now he comes to the Corinthians, and here's an invitation to generosity. And again, Paul isn't going to power up on them. He's not going to scold them. But I just love his tone. He's going to invite them into a life of generosity. So just read verse 7 and 8. It says, he says this. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, so he's saying, guys, I love you, and this is what I want for you. See to it that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. You know, his biggest concern for them is that you guys truly do love Jesus, that you have been truly changed by the grace of God, that you've been set free of living for yourself or of hoarding or being selfish, but you are set free by the grace of God as, as a pastor to these people. That is what his biggest concern was. And his, his desire is, I want to see that. If I can see that in your generosity, then I will know that you've encountered uh, the generosity of God through Jesus. And so uh, this is my, again, my encouragement for you as well. Like I, I would just love us to be a church that is truly transformed and set free by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, so here's my question, two questions for us as we wrap up is that do you find generosity making sense to you? Does it make sense? Naturally, it doesn't. But when you've encountered the grace of God, it begins to, it make, it begins to make sense. As you grow more and more in that grace, then generosity continues to grow in your life. So uh, if I were just to ask you straight up, is generosity making sense? Is generosity showing up in your life? Um, then, then if it's not, my big encouragement for you in these two weeks isn't to focus so much on are you being generous or are you serving or are you giving. My biggest concern would be to kind of back that, that card up a step and just sit on the, on the grace of God. Like, do you really understand the gospel? Do you really understand what God has done for you? Do you really understand our poverty and Christ's riches and now our riches in Christ? Because I, I think until we understand that, we could talk all we want about generosity, nothing's going to happen. So that's my biggest concern. Do you really understand the truth of the gospel and what that offers us, okay? And here's the second question, is that the people, can the people around you tell that you've been around Jesus? Can the people around you tell that you have a generous Savior who has, who has richly provided for you, who has loved you at your worst, has forgiven you, and now has lavished these amazing gifts on you? Would, would the people around you say, just by watching how you live, uh, are, you, are you generous, like with your time, with your attention, with your conversation? Is it always about you? Or are you the person that's listening and caring for others by how you do your work? Are you going extra mile? Are you looking for others you can help and encourage along the way? Um, there, are, there are many ways that the people around us can truly tell if we have uh, been around Jesus. And so, and so that's, that's my question for you too. And so again, one of the traits of a follower of Jesus is that we're be a, we'll be a people who share God's gifts, that we share. We are so aware we've been so blessed. So we'll be known for our generosity. So what I want to do to close our time in prayer is I'm going to just ask you to stand up and we're going to actually pray through a couple verses uh, from the Bible to wrap up our time. So let me again point you to this study. It'll be a good thing you can do as a family. 
And uh, like Dave mentioned earlier, there's a couple classes coming up uh, to help teach this trait uh, to our church. Look for that. Also, um, in the last several years, our church has done a Dave Ramsey uh, seminar, and that starts in January. That'll be um, some training that can really help you with the tactics of getting out of debt and leveraging yourself uh, to live a life of generosity. So those are some opportunities that could come your way. Uh, so, but here's what we do to close our time. First um, Timothy 6, 17 to 19 is just loaded with some great truths from this morning. So I'm going to read some and then pause and invite you to pray about something and then we're going to finish the passage and then you'll pray and then we're done this morning. So 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says that as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, like not to be proud of what we have, nor to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Who does pause there? And could you just take a minute and just thank God for being a God who richly provides everything for us to enjoy? Can you just thank God for being a faithful provider for you? Maybe some specifics of the last year. How has he been your provider? How has he cared for you? Just thank him, praise him for being a God who provides.